Um, just lost the just completely lost the scripture reference, but it says the, pe- the people without prophetic vision cast off restraint. There we go, Habakkuk. Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, I was thinking about this, and um, what I what I what I love about our body, what our church has done, is this: is when Sarah and I decided that we were going to move forward with this, and you know, God gave us a vision for it. But I said we're gonna. We are going to be a church without restraint. And I want to say it this way. And everybody's like, what? Wait a minute. No. I want to be a church that's out uh, without restraint. And people that hear this podcast are probably going to get a little mad at what I'm just saying. But without restraint, within context of what the gospel and the scriptures say. We're not going to put, a, uh, we're not going to put restraint on of what man has made up of what we're going to do. We're going to look at the scripture and say, this is what Jesus did. I'm going to follow what Jesus said. I'm going to do what Jesus said. We're not going to constrain ourselves. Proverbs 29, Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I wanted, uh, we wanted to create a place where freedom can be, can reign. God reigns, but freedom is brought into context. Because what happens is, is this, is how many of you guys know that when we are born again, we're like, yes, Jesus saved me, I'm born again. And then all of a sudden, a lot of these rules start to creep back in on you of what you cannot do, what you shouldn't be doing, what what 660 plus laws say, you can't do this, you can't do this. I look at it and say, if you are living your life within the restraints and the constraints of scripture, following what the scripture tells you to do, not trying to, well, I, I'm going to change Scripture to do this. The constraint of Scripture should be our model for life. Not, oh, I've decided to, to do this. We've decided that only women have to wear head coverings and dresses now at our church. You know, it's like, and I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying is, why are we creating things? And by the way, you can't wear earrings or you can't wear this. Why are we putting constraints on things from parts of the passages of the Bible that we think, oh, well, you know, God told you to do this. So my question is this. How many have ever had braces? Okay, if you've ever had braces, within constraint of Scripture, looking at it, you would be vain. But if you look at Scripture and say, okay, I'm going to apply Scripture to my life, that doesn't mean you can't have braces. That doesn't mean you can't wear earrings. That doesn't mean you can't wear jewelry. What it means is, is this, is looking at it within context of what Paul is writing to the people that he's writing to within that time frame and that timeline and that church and that, that culture. We have, to look at our, we have to look at our culture and say, okay, how would we write, if, if we were going to write to the people in our culture, say we're writing to... We're going to write to California. Okay. <laughs> say an apostle's writing to California. What is he going to say to them today? We have some ideas of what he's going to say to them today. What would he, what would he write to them? And so when we look at the, the constraint of Scripture of guiding us, Scripture has to guide us, but it doesn't, not everything is literal for us to Women have to wear head coverings. We have to look at what Paul is saying and saying, okay, what culture is he speaking to? What, what religious spirit is he speaking to? 
what is going on in the culture that is so predominant that we have to start to counteract what culture is doing. And so Paul's not making human rules. He's saying this is going to be helpful for you while you are living a life that is bound to Christ. You are servants to Christ. You are slaves to righteousness. How am I going to help you battle what is happening in the culture? So we look at Scripture, and that is a constraint for us because we're believers. We follow Scripture. That is what we do. We look at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus did this. I'm going to do this. We look at the Ten Commandments. I'm going to follow those because Jesus said, love your neighbor and love God. Those are summed up in the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not get rid of the law. He said, I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus like, all those rules and regulations that have been placed on you, I'm now coming to fulfill those so you don't have to live by those rules and regulations. You just have to love God and love your neighbor. So when we look at Scripture, we have to say, okay, yes, Jewry, Paul talked about that. But if you look, we have to read within Scripture. Did Paul say to every one of his letters, into every book that he wrote, and every um, area that he wrote to, did he tell them the exact same thing? No. No, he gave them specific instructions for their specific city, their specific time, and their specific strongholds that were happening in their city. So if we were in a right to California or a right to New York or a right to Chicago or a right to Detroit, we are going, Paul would have wrote a specific letter saying, this is what's happening in your town. I see what's happening in your city. I see what's happening in your region. This is how you deal with it. So when we look at scripture, scripture is not a free-for-all for us to just do whatever we want and just ask for forgiveness later. Paul says, do we keep on sinning and make grace cheap? No, we don't. So Paul is saying the scripture contains what we're supposed to do. And if you ever noticed, Paul is one of the few people that actually says, this is my opinion. He says, it's better for a man not to marry. That's his opinion. That's not, that's not what God said. He's saying it's better off for a man not to marry because of the persecution that's happening in your area, in your towns, in your region, because you do follow Christ. So we have to look at him and say, okay, he was writing to specific people. He was writing to Timothy. He was giving Timothy good information, good wisdom. He was saying, hey, Timothy, if you're having stomach issues, take a little bit of wine. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing is, we can, but it also says in the, the Bible, do not be drunk. So was Paul sinning when he did that? No, absolutely not. He was telling his, his, his son in the faith how to deal with a health problem that he was starting to deal with. So when we look at Scripture, we have to look at Scripture and say, okay, Scripture is a constraint for us to walk in. It's a, it's a path. And it's not constraining. and it's not, it's not heavy-handed. It's not going to be restrictive. It's just something you stay in. You stay in your lane. Last night we were on our way home and there was some messed up dude just following us and he's just like weaving halfway across and weaving into the ditch a little bit and I'm just like, there's yellow lines for a reason there, buddy. I'm like, but those are something, they are guide for us. They help us go in the way that we should go. So the, the constraint of scripture is this. It's a freedom to move within the lines that Christ has given us, that God has given us from the beginning of time until the final book was written. But what happens is, is this. We need to look at scripture and go, this is what scripture tells me. This is how I'm supposed to behave. This is how I'm supposed to love people, guide people. But we also have to make a concession for the Holy Spirit to guide us in the way that we should go. 
And, uh, and there's going to be times I'm not saying, oh, the Holy Spirit told me to sin. No, absolutely not. The Holy Spirit is not telling you to sin. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you into truth. He's going to guide you in righteousness, and he's going to guide you into victory. So don't let what society says, don't let man-made rules start to, to tighten your view of what God is doing or what God can do. Because what happens is this, the moment we place man-made rules on who God is and how he's supposed to operate, we immediately start to limit him and what he's going to do. I'm not saying you, you can limit God. I'm saying I, you can limit him and what he can do in your life. He still has to have permission from you to work in your life. It's like God can knock, is knocking at the door and says, hey, I want to work in your life. And you're like, no, I don't want anything. I want to stay the way I am. You can stay the way you are, but like Sarah said, it's dangerous. But what I'm saying is, is do not let a mindset of rules made by man follow authority, uh, what the rules that God has placed. God said the authorities are placed in, in your life for your protection and for your safety. That means spiritual authority. That means governmental authority. That means you know, regional government. That means national government. God has placed those. Those are supposed to be a form of God working. God has placed those for him to work and to, to govern. And it's sometimes people, it's hard for people to, to deal with that. But God says, I place authority in your life so that you can submit to me, not to them. Yeah. By you submitting to authority, you're submitting to him. And that's hard for people. Well, that's a man. I follow God. Yes, we all follow God. But God gave us a man, Jesus Christ, who his disciples followed. So if, you, if the disciples had to follow him, we have to follow our leaders. And this is not an authoritative me trying to tell you to follow me. This is about us following Christ and saying man-made rules of who Christ is and how we're supposed to worship him and how we can um, talk about him and what we should do. They constrain us in our experience with Christ. And I'm not saying cast off all restraint and just go running around being a, a nut job and, and, you know, talking about Jesus everywhere and then telling people it's okay to do things that are contrary to Scripture. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is do not let man constrain who Christ is. Be aware of what happens around you because God will try to allow freedom to come into your life. Allow change to come into your life and man will say, well, God doesn't work that way. And at that point you can say, well, give me a list on how God works and then I'll do that. Because if you, they can give you a list and exactly how God works, run. run. <laughs> because I've seen God work in ways that I would yeah. never have ex- expected ever in my life. And I think a lot of you have, expect, have done that too. God just shows up and moves in power, moves in might, moves in healing, moves in uh, deliverance, revelation, whatever it is. But do not allow a person to say that's not how God works God how God works can be reviewed in scripture we look at Jesus Jesus goes calls Lazarus from the dead goes lays hands on Peter's mother-in-law Peter's like you can heal her if you want no I'm just kidding (laughs) but uh, 
but he lays hands on Peter's mother-in-law, those are her, and she's healed. Then he says to the centurion, your daughter's healed, doesn't even have to go to her. There's not a, a, a rhyme, a reason, a key, a formula to how Jesus worked and how his power worked. So we can't constrain, his, constrain how our minds should work around him. We just need to experience Jesus. And a lot of people will tell you, well, you just, it's all about emotion. If I'm telling you this, I'm one of the least emotional people that you will ever meet. I have a little bit of emotion every now and my wife's like, tap into the emotion. You need some emotion. Yes. Yes. I've seen God work and it's not an emotional thing. I've seen God move and it's not an emotional thing. So my challenge to you is, don't think everything that you see is just an emotional thing. Don't let people tell you it's just emotions that make you feel this way. I don't think that they uh, can understand the brain the way God understands the brain. So when we experience God, thank him for the experience. Don't re- and when you are dealing with life and when you are going through what you are going through, Thank him that you are going through that, that he can lead you in all victory, that he can lead you in triumph. But we just want to, it's easy for us to put constraints on God. It's easy for us to limit how we think God should work. But he doesn't work that way. He doesn't, um, he doesn't do those things. God is the same today as he was yesterday and the day before that and a hundred years before that and a thousand years before that and however long God has existed, who is God, who has always existed and who has always been and always will be. He's always been there. And we can't ever really just say, well, God doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, if Jesus worked 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the way that he worked he can still work today the way that he worked then. The great thing about it is, is he is not present with us. And people are like, oh, yeah, get over it. Um, he sent us the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit will bring you more than I can give you. He will be with you, every one of us, always. Not, well, when I'm here. His disciples were codependent upon him. Do you see, do you see that? They're like, oh, yeah, Jesus, we love you, we love you. Cut off an ear and then run away five, you know, five minutes later. They were, so, they were so codependent on him, they could not function without him very well. They had moments. They had their moments of, I did well, but they would come back to Jesus and be like, we couldn't do this. We couldn't get away with this. We couldn't, what's going on? Jesus is like, this is what you need. This is what you need. And that's why the Holy Spirit is, is important in our lives because Jesus said, you're codependent upon me, and that's a good thing and a bad thing, but you need to learn how to walk on your own. And Jesus said, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, who will be present with you always. Jesus sent us, some, sent us a gift, gave us the person of the Holy Spirit, which is better than being with Jesus because we can walk with him, and we don't have to all be in the same group walking around saying, okay, Jesus, what are we doing now? Jesus' Jesus's ministry and his disciples were for a time and a season of three years of them spending the time together. But God said, you know what? We have a better plan for you guys than just Jesus being here. It is the Holy Spirit, and he will lead you. He will guide you. He will give you power. And we see that. 
So when we start to, to put God into this mindset of, well, I've never seen God work that way. He probably doesn't work that way. Stop. Take that thought. Pull it out. I have seen God work in some of the weirdest ways possible, and I don't know how he does it or why, why he does it that way. I think he does it just to make us go, holy cow, that was awesome. Because he doesn't want us, he wants us to have that relationship with him that's always fresh, always new. And what happens is, is we, we try to put God into that routine of God, that routine God, where we go to him and we do what we need to do, so he operates how we want to operate. So I'm saying, telling you guys is this, to put the, take constraints off how you think God can work. And I'm not talking about expanding your mind or your consciousness or anything like that. None of that crap. I'm telling you, think about how he worked in your life. And think about all the times that he's worked in other people's lives. And they, they have told you about their testimony of God working and um, doing something powerful in their life and say, okay, God, I can accept those ways of you doing that. And however you're going to operate, if it's that way, that way, that way, that way, I'm okay with. But we tend to, we are uh, people of habit and of routine, and we tend to try to make God a person of habit and routine and say, okay, God, this is what I need. This is how I need it. This is when I need it. This is why I'm asking you and do it for me now. And we can't. God has to be placed in a spot that is bigger than our mind, than our limitation of how we see him move. And we have to release him to do that in our lives. So many times we, we want him to move how we want him to move and we place him within the restraints of our will, our desire, our timing, our demands, and he does not work that way. So I'm telling you is allow, release yourself to release God to work more powerfully in your life. Do not tell him how you want him to move says when you make your request known, he knows about it. And then we praise him for it. At that point, make your request known, thank him for it, and say, however you do, you do. That was for free. John 12. You guys can turn there if you want. John 12, 12 through 19 says this. It says, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of the palm tree and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And this is referring to um, Zechariah. I'll read that in a minute. Hosanna. You guys know what that means? Thanks for the answer. <laughs> All right. Hosanna is transliterated between two Hebrew words. First one means Yasha, or is Yasha, means to save and deliver. And then the second part is Anna, which means please, I beseech you. Think about this. They are crying, Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, we beseech you to deliver us 
come save us. They are crying out for their king. They are crying out for their savior. And then verse 15, oh, says this, it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, colt. His, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Do you guys realize, we read this scripture, but there's a scripture, there's a couple verses before verse 12. Do you realize that because of what Jesus has done, his miracles that he had done, there was a plot to kill Lazarus after Jesus brought him back from the dead. They were so afraid of what Jesus had done. They were willing to kill Lazarus and the other people that Jesus had healed in order to squash it, to kill the movement, to stop what Jesus was doing. Very few people actually tell you about this. This is why the people were saying glory to God in the highest, because they had seen what, Laz what had happened with Lazarus. And the Pharisees were so afraid of a movement starting and what had already started that they were willing to kill a, a, a guy that was already dead and brought back to life. I mean, Lazarus kind of had the bad end of the stick on this. I mean, he was like, you know, you know, I'm dead. Jesus brings me back. But I was in heaven, but then I got brought back to earth. And it's like, okay, do I come back to, like, I, I would be kind of mad. Like, he's in heaven. He's been dead for a couple of days. He's got to be with God. And then God, and then Jesus brings him back. And I'd be like. Yeah, well, that's probably why Jesus was crying. But, you know, I'd been, I'd been like, I'm in glory. I'm in, in the presence of God. And then Jesus brings me back and I'm like, man, I'm kind of mad at you right now. I mean, yeah, you brought me back to life, which is amazing, but I'm kind of mad at you right now. And then even more on top of that, they're trying to kill him after that. Like, hey, let's just kill this dude. You know, he was dead and we'll try to kill him again. I'd be mad. I'd be mad about that. Like, Jesus, you brought me back just for them to try to kill me. I, I probably wouldn't have said that. I'm just saying. In his mind, he was thinking that, though. But they were crying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This story is in all the Gospels. Rarely will you find a story that is in all four Gospels. You will see variations of a story in the Gospels. There's going to be two Gospels may have it, three Gospels may have it, but very rarely do you see four Gospels carrying the same story. Every one of these stories is almost identical in the way that it is spoken, in the way that it is written. There's some variations in, in how it is laid out, but Mark 11, Matthew 21, and Luke 19 all tell the same story in a little bit different variation. There's something key to this. If you know, if it is in all four Gospels, there is something that we need to understand from this scripture, this text here. It 
there's something very, very important that the gospel, all four Gospels speak of Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. This was the crowning moment for his followers. They're like, he's coming in. He's, he's riding on a donkey. And he's, you know, like, wait a minute, riding on a donkey? But there's something important about that. There's something important about him riding in on a donkey. Think about this. This, this donkey delivered him up into the city that he would be tried, beaten, tortured, and then eventually murdered in. Do you know that a donkey is actually a, um, an animal that was a sign of peace? When armies would battle each other, if an if a army knew that they couldn't win and they wanted to win over the army that was coming in and say, okay, we want to have peace with you, they would load a donkey with treasure everything that they had that was valuable, and they would send a caravan of people with those donkeys to that group of people and say, hey, this is, this is what we're offering you for peace. The Israelites thought their, their king would come in in a chariot, a spear, a sword, a bow, and deliver them. And Jesus comes in, and he's riding an animal of peace as the Prince of Peace, to deliver his people with a ransom to an enemy. There was a price that had to be paid, and Jesus was offered up riding this, uh, this donkey into the city saying, okay, I've come here to bring you peace. I've come here to bring you deliverance. It, it, it threw the, the Pharisees, it threw the people who didn't understand for a loop. Why would he ride in on a donkey? Why would he ride in on some animal that is lowly? Because he came to be low. He was made low for us. Yes, he was God, but he was made low. He was pushed down. He was crushed for us. That's why he rode in on a donkey. It was a sign of peace, but not war. A chariot, a horse, a spear, that was the sign of war. But Jesus came, I came to make peace. And that peace was with man, not the enemy. He's like, I'm never making peace with you. I'm here to make peace with man and offer myself up as, an off, as a sacrifice for you so we can have a relationship, so we could be at peace. He was carried to Jerusalem on a donkey for his ultimate purpose. And people acknowledged that they saw that. There was something that they recognized. And I don't think it was so much in their, in, their, in their vision and what their thoughts were, but their spirits knew what was happening. They knew who Christ was and their spirits knew who he was and what he was getting prepared to do. Even, it says even his disciples didn't understand it until they remembered the scripture and to remember what had happened to him, his feet being washed by Mary. She was anointing him, getting him ready for his crucifixion and his burial. People are acknowledging him by throwing palm leaves on the ground. They were acknowledging his majesty, his rule, and his reign ready to begin. He didn't rule or reign when he was there. He came to serve. It didn't say, he didn't say, I come to rule. He, came, he goes, I came to serve. 
His rule and reign was after his death, burial, and resurrection. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For us, or excuse me, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Usually in um, ancient writings, the first and the last tend to be the most important if you look at things. They would, uh, a name would be first or last. Um, it's until, you know, the last couple hundred years, last names didn't really exist. You were whatever your father's name was. That was your last name. You were blah, 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 father's name. And that's how it was. But what God is saying here, he calls him, a, in Isaiah calls him a wonderful counselor, but then he calls him the Prince of Peace. Because he knew what God had told him about Jesus. He knew what was happening, and he knew what the first thing he would bring would be. Zechariah 9 says this, Sorry, I skipped ahead on accident. Too fast of a scroll. It, it's okay, we'll get there. When Jesus rode in on that donkey, he proclaimed, I am the prophesied Messiah. Because he was fulfilling prophecy of all the different scriptures that said he was going to do that. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 says this, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, Aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow from, shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What's happening is this, is in that scripture, He's saying this. It's a symbolic part of the prophecy. And it says, I'm going to take away the chariots. It's going to be an end to a vehicle of war. He's taking away the war horses. No need for horses to be used in war. The battle bow will be broken. No need for the bow or arrows for fighting. It will proclaim peace to the nations. His message will be one of reconciliation. His rule shall be from sea to sea. The king will control extended territory with no enemies of concern. Think about this. Jesus went, did his ministry three years, taught his disciples, taught people, performed miracles, went to the cross and came back. But not once did you say, see him concerned about his enemy. His whole mission was not about his enemy, it was about us. He said, I'm going to defeat the enemy. He went to hell, grabbed the keys of, of, of death, said, oh, by the way, I own this now. His enemy is not any concern to him. He knows there... He, the funny thing is, is that the battle for our souls ended at the cross. With his death, burial, and resurrection, it ended there. The enemy of our soul, Satan, is still fighting that battle thousands of years later, 
still trying to wage war, and Jesus already won. So when we look at Scripture, yes, he is the devourer of our... He is the enemy of our souls. He is the one that goes around like a roaring lion. And when he says like a roaring lion, he's just an overgrown house cat that's eaten too much. And he tries to deceive and he tries to scare us into things. But what Jesus did was ended it at that moment on the cross. When he was crucified, when he died, when he was buried, when he rose again, he finalized something for us. The war is over between God and man. Jesus rode in on a donkey as a peace offering to man and saying, I give you a sacrifice, I give you an offering so we can have a right relationship, so we can have a reconciled relationship. Jesus fulfills the prediction of Zechariah, world peace Proclaimed by a humble king will be the fulfillment of the angel's song in Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill towards men. He says, I have goodwill towards you. I am sending you something as an offering, as a, as a, a, a point of reconciliation so we can have goodwill between each other. It'd be like going up to an enemy that wants to attack you and bringing that donkey out full of treasure and, and whatever and saying, I have goodwill towards you. Please have goodwill towards me. He brought us something. So every time we see Christ doing something, there's not a, a passage you can't read that Christ is not uh, fulfilling a prophecy and enabling what God had been planning from the beginning. He's the Prince of Peace. The people were overtaken by joy that they lay, they went and cut palm leaves down. And I don't think, you can't, most palm trees are not, you know, a shrub. You're, you're climbing palm trees which are 10, 12, 20, 30 feet tall because they're climbing. These people got these palm leaves out, and they're laying them at the feet of this donkey as this donkey is going by. They're laying them in there as a way to honor Jesus, to honor what he is doing, to say, we acknowledge you as our king. We acknowledge you as our deliverer. I don't even think they knew what they were doing on some of those points. Some people did know because they could see what the prophecies were fulfilled, but their spirits were crying out for a deliverer. They were acknowledging his rule and reign beginning. They didn't understand how it was going to work. I don't think we would have really understood how it was going to work back then. We would have probably been like, yeah, Jesus is coming. He's going to kick out the Romans and he's going to, you know, we're going to have a free system here again and Jesus is going to rule and reign. And he's going to sit in the throne in Jerusalem just like David did and, um, and uh, Solomon did. And he's going to rule and we're going to be free. And he's like, no, I've got a better plan. I've got a better plan to make you free than for a short period of your life. God could have. He could have sent his son down and just said, boom, wipe him out. I mean, if he could have wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm pretty sure he could have wiped out a few Roman, a few hundred Roman soldiers in a certain area, a few thousand. 
But he didn't. He said, I have a better way than violence. Violence only begets violence because violence, you can only keep what you have through violence. The only way you can hold on to something when you take it by violence is by violence. You're, you're trying to take that, to keep that territory. But Jesus said, I'm going to come in and I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring peace in a way that you will be free no matter what situation you're in, no matter what country you're in, no matter what government rules, no matter what leader rules, you will have peace and freedom in my kingdom because it's not constrained by your physical body. He allowed us and our spirits to be free and to live in his kingdom, to be sons and daughters, to be adopted, reconciled into his kingdom without having to physically do something, to physically move to an area, to be in a, a, an area. And think about this. We see hundreds and thousands of persecuted people all over the world, and they are still free even though they are persecuted. In their hearts, in their spirits, in their, in their soul, they are free because they have found Jesus Christ. They have reconciled to Jesus even though they are in a country that doesn't believe it, in their society that doesn't believe it, pretty soon our society is not going to be very friendly to us. They're kind of friendly to us, as long as you don't say anything. We like Christians, just keep your mouth shut, you know? Don't tell us what you think. But he was announcing his rule and reign. I'm coming in as a lowly person on a donkey, as goodwill offering to man, saying, I want to have peace with you. Because violence wouldn't have come in and said, I, I got a sword, I've got a bow, I've got a chariot, I want peace with you. That would have not have been a voluntary peace. It would have been, okay, yeah, yeah, we're good, we're good. I mean, I ever threatened you and you're like, yeah, we're good, nope, no problem, I'm just going to go that way. You just, that's not peace. Peace is when one party and the other party can be together without having. Thank you. <laughs> so acknowledging him, they were laying down their palm reeds. As we get ready to close here, I just want I want to, for us to do this. We need to acknowledge his rule and his reign in our lives. We need to do that by laying down our crowns at his feet our pride of life. And I think what happens is our crown becomes part of our identity. The pride of life, the I'm good at this and I've done this and this is what I've accomplished. Paul says everything I've done and compared to Christ is nothing but disgusting, filthy, worthless rags. So I think as we think about this. We need to lay our crowns down at his feet. Lay our will down at our, his feet. Lay our desires, our emotions, our hopes, our dreams, our preconceived notions of who he is and how he's going to work. We need to lay those down at his feet and just say, I surrender myself to you. I give myself to you. I want peace with you. I want you to be my king and I'm going to be with you.
And as we do that, I just ask for a fresh revelation of who he is, not what I've dreamed you up to be and what I've made you up to be, but as, a, as who you are as God and king. Give me a fresh revelation of your rule, your reign, your lordship in my life. And it starts with, with that. It starts with us giving our life to him, saying, you know what, I am not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to give my life to you and you lead me. And as we do that, we will start to be able to see who he is in his glory, in his goodness, and worship him for who he is. Not, God, I'm worshiping you for who I think you should be or what I want you to be, but for who he is. And as we get that revelation of who he is, we will start to be changed by that. We cannot stand in the presence of God and be in the glory of God or be in his presence and not be changed. We cannot just, well, I gave my life to you and not be changed. Well, I'm sorry, you can be if you don't want to be changed. But God, it says, if you give your life to me and you submit yourself to me, I will change you. I will bring you some, to a new place. I will bring you to a new person. And when we surrender ourselves to him, we need to learn to worship him for who he is. Yes, he is the everlasting father, but he is the prince of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the one who brings us peace. And we see that because he did that in multiple times in the, in the gospels. He said, peace, be still. Peace be with you. So as we go this week, as we go out, before we leave this room, I think we just need to surrender ourselves to him. There's areas in our, all of our lives that we just need to re-surrender to him and just say, you know what, God, I give you the areas I'm holding on to. I'm giving you the parts of my life that I can't hold on to. I'm, I've got a death grip on it, but I'm failing at it. I need to give that to you. Whatever that you can't hold on to anymore or you're trying to hold on to and you're failing at it, lay it down at his feet. It's your marriage, your finances, whatever it is, your health, your mental health, whatever it is, lay it down at his feet and watch him change it. Lay it down at his feet and watch him change. And as you do that, you will start to see God in a way that you've never experienced him before. And you'll experience him in a way that you've never experienced him before. And you will start to worship him in a way that you've never worshiped him before. When you see somebody who's been freed for the first time from something, the way they worship God is completely different than the way they worshiped him before because they understand the peace and the understanding that comes with laying themselves at the, the feet of God, laying themselves down and saying, it is not my will, Father, it is not my will, Jesus. Jesus, I give myself to you. It is your will for my life. Let's pray.